0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com Daily bonuses are waiting No purchase necessary Void were prohibited by law 18 plus Terms and conditions apply See website for details He now lives
1: within himself Which is a dangerous place for him to be But the reality of it is That he's not a strategic thinker And he's in a moment now It's, it's perilous Who knows We may get to a point Where the question is asked What did the president know And when did his son-in-law tell him Hello, Trumpcast listeners. We have something special for you today, a reading by Rebecca Solnit. She's the author of books including Men Explain Things to Me and Hope in the Dark. She's also a columnist at Harper's and a contributor at The Guardian. And last week, Rebecca published a story that I thought was just fantastic. It was on the site Lithub, and it really went viral. After reading it, I just sent her a message and asked her if she'd come on the show and read it, which she generously agreed to do. It tells the story of, well, you know what this is about. If you want to read the story, click on the link in the description for this episode. And if you want to hear Rebecca talk about the story with my co-host, Virginia Heffernan, you should sign up for Slate+. Plus. When you join, you'll get the full suite of Slate Plus benefits, including bonus segments of your favorite Slate shows like the Political Gab Fest and the Culture Gab Fest, as well as ad-free versions of this show, TrumpCast. So go to slate.com slash TrumpCastPlus to sign up today or to start your two-week free trial. That's slate.com slash TrumpCastPlus. And now, here is Rebecca Solnit reading her story... The Loneliness of Donald Trump.
0: Once upon a time, a child was born into wealth and wanted for nothing. But he was possessed by bottomless, endless, grating, grasping, wanting, and wanted more and got it, and more after that, and always more. He was a pair of ragged orange claws upon the ocean floor, forever scuttling, pinching, reaching for more, a carrion crab, a lobster and a boiling lobster pot in one, a termite, a tyrant over his own little empires. He got a boost at the beginning from the wealth handed him, and then moved among grifters and mobsters who cut him slack as long as he was useful. So for seven decades he fed his appetites and exercised his license to lie, cheat, steal, and stiff-working people of their wages, made messes, left them behind, grabbed more baubles, and left them in ruin. He was supposed to be a great maker of things, but he was mostly a breaker. He acquired buildings and women and enterprises and treated them all alike, promoting and assaulting and deserting them, running into bankruptcies and divorces, treading on lawsuits the way a lumberjack of old moved across the logs, floating on their way to the mill. But as long as he moved in his underworld of deal-makers, the rules were wobbly and enforcement was wobblier and he could stay afloat. But his appetite was endless and he wanted more and he gambled to become the most powerful man in the world and won, careless of what he wished for. Thinking of him, I think of Pushkin's telling of the old fairy tale of the Fisherman and the Golden Fish this is how the tale goes. After being caught in the old fisherman's net, the golden fish speaks up and offers wishes in return for being thrown back in the sea. The fisherman asks him for nothing, though later he tells his wife of his chance encounter with a magical creature. The fisherman's wife sends him back to ask for a new wash tub for her, and then a second time to ask for a cottage to replace their hovel, and the wishes are granted. And then as she grows prouder, And greedier, she sends him back to ask that she become a wealthy person in a mansion. With servants she abuses, and then she sends her husband back again. The old man comes and grovels before the fish, caught between the shame of the requests and the appetite of his wife. And she becomes Tsarina and has her boyars and nobles drive the husband from her palace. You could call the husband consciousness, the awareness of others and oneself in relation to others. And the wife... Craving. Finally, she wishes to be supreme over the seas and over the fish itself, endlessly uttering wishes. And the old man goes back to the sea to tell the fish, to complain to the fish of this latest round of wishes. The fish this time doesn't even speak, just flashes his tail. And the old man turns around to see on the shore his wife with her broken wash tub at their old hovel. Overreach is perilous, says this Russian tale. Enough is enough, and sometimes too much becomes nothing. The child who became the most powerful man in the world, or at least occupied the real estate occupied by a series of these men, had run a family business and then starred in an unreality show based on the fiction that he was a stately emperor of enterprise rather than a buffoon barging along anyhow, and each was a hall of mirrors made to flatter his sense of self, the self that was his one edifice he kept raising higher and higher and never abandoned." I have often run across men, and rarely, but certainly not never, women, who have become so powerful in their lives that there is no one to tell them when they are cruel, wrong, foolish, absurd, repugnant. And then there is no one else in their world, because when you are not willing to hear what others think, how others feel, what others need, when you do not care, when you cannot listen, you are not willing to acknowledge others' existence. That's how it's lonely at the top. It's as though these petty tyrants live in a world without honest mirrors, without others, without gravity, and they are buffered from the consequences of their failures. They were careless people, F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote of the rich couple at the heart of the Great Gatsby. They smashed things up in creatures and then retreated back into their money or their vast carelessness or whatever it was that kept them together and let other people clean up the mess they had made. Some of us are surrounded by destructive people who tell us we're worthless when we're valuable, that we're stupid when we're smart, that we're failing even when we succeed. But the opposite of people who drag you down isn't people who build you up and butter you up. It's equals who are generous but keep you accountable, true mirrors who reflect back who you are and what you are doing. We keep each other honest, we keep each other good with our feedback, our intolerance of meanness and falsehood, our demands that the people we are with listen, respect, respond. If we're allowed to, if we are free and valued ourselves, there is a democracy of social discourse in which we are reminded that as we are beset with desires and fears and feelings, so are others. There was an old woman in Occupy Wall Street center, I always go back to, who said, We're fighting for a society in which everyone is important. That's what a democracy of mind and heart, as well as economy and politics, would look like. This year, Hannah Arendt is alarmingly relevant, and her books are selling well, particularly on the origins of totalitarianism— She's been the subject of an extraordinary essay in the Los Angeles Review of Books and a conversation between scholar Lindsay Stonebridge and Krista Tippett on the radio show On Being. There, Stonebridge notes that Arendt advocated for the importance of an inner dialogue with oneself, for a critical splitting in which you interrogate yourself, for a real conversation between the fisherman and his wife, you could say, between craving and consciousness— Stonebridge says, people who can do that can actually then move on to having conversations with other people, and then judging with other people. And what she calls the banality of evil was the inability to hear another voice, the inability to have a dialogue either with oneself or the imagination to have a dialogue with the world, the moral world. Some use their power to silence that and live in the void of their own increasingly deteriorating, off-course sense of self and meaning. It's like going mad on a desert island, only with psychophants and room service. It's like having a compliant compass that agrees north is whatever you want it to be. The tyrant of a family, the tyrant of a little business or a huge enterprise, the tyrant of a nation, power corrupts, and absolute power often corrupts the awareness of those who possess it. Or reduces it. Narcissists, sociopaths, and egomaniacs are people for whom others don't exist. We gain awareness of ourselves and others from setbacks and difficulties. We get used to a world that's not always about us, and those who do not have to cope with that world are bitter, weak, unable to endure contradiction, convinced of the necessity of always having one's own way. The rich kids I met in college wanted depth. They were flailing around as though they wanted to find walls around them leapt as though they wanted there to be gravity and to hit ground, even bottom, but parents and privilege kept throwing out safety nets and buffers, kept patting the walls and picking up the pieces, so that all their acts were meaningless, literally inconsequential. They floated like astronauts in outer space. Equality keeps us honest. Our peers tell us who we are and how we are doing. Provide that service in personal life that a free press does in a functioning society. Inequality creates liars and delusion. The powerless need to dissemble. That's how slaves, servants, and women got the reputation of being liars. The powerful grow stupid on the lies they require from their subordinates, and the lack of need to know about others who are nobody, who don't count, who've been silenced or trained to please. This is why I always pair privilege with obliviousness. Obliviousness is privilege privileged form of deprivation. When you don't hear others, you don't imagine them they become unreal, and you're left in the wasteland of a world, with only yourself in it, and that surely makes you starving, though you know not for what, if you have ceased to imagine others exist in any true way that matters. This is about a need for which we hardly have language, or at least not a familiar conversation. A man who wished to become the most powerful man in the world, and by happenstance and intervention in a series of disasters, was granted his wish, Surely he must have imagined that more power meant more flattery, a grander image, a greater hall of mirrors reflecting back his magnificence. But he misunderstood power and prominence. This man had bullied friends and acquaintances, wives and servants, and he bullied facts and truths, insisting that he was more than they were that it too must yield to his will. It did not, but the people he bullied pretended that it did. Or perhaps it was that he was a salesman, throwing out one pitch after another, abandoning each as soon as it left his mouth. A hungry ghost always wants the next thing, not the last thing. This one imagined that the power he'd gained would repose within him and make him great. But the power of the presidency was what it had always been, a system of cooperative relationships, a power that rested on people's willingness to carry out the orders the president gave, and a willingness that came from the president's respect for rule of law, truth in the people. A man who gives an order that is not followed has his powerlessness hung out like dirty laundry. One day earlier this year, One of the president's minions announced that the president's power would not be questioned. There are tyrants who might utter such a statement and strike fear into those beneath him, because they have installed enough fear. A true tyrant does not depend on cooperative power, power of command enforced by thugs, goons, stasi, the SS, or death squads. A true tyrant has subordinated the system of government and made it loyal to himself rather than to the system of laws or the ideals of the country. This would-be tyrant didn't understand that he was in a system where many in government, perhaps most beyond the members of his party in the legislative branch, were loyal to law and to principle and not to him. His minion announced that the president would not be questioned, and we laughed. He called in like courtiers the heads of the FBI, of the NSA, and the director of national intelligence to tell them to suppress evidence, to squelch investigations, and found that their loyalty was not to him. He found out to his chagrin that we were still something of a democracy and that the free press could not be so easily stopped and that the public itself refused to be cowed and mocks him earnestly at every turn. A true tyrant sits beyond the sea in Pushkin's country. He corrupts elections, and eliminates his enemy with bullets, poisons, with deaths made to look like accidents. He spreads fear and bullies the truth successfully, strategically. Though he too had to overreach with his intrusions into the American election, a way it hoped would be invisible caused the whole world to scrutinize him and his actions in history and impact with concern and even outrage. Russia may have ruined whatever standing and trust it has may have exposed itself with this intervention in the U.S. and then European elections. The American buffoon's commands were disobeyed. His secrets leaked at such a rate, his office resembled the fountains at Versailles, or maybe just a sieve. This spring, there was an extraordinary piece in the Washington Post with 30 anonymous sources. His agenda was undermined even by a minority party that was not supposed to have much in the way of power. The judiciary kept suspending his executive orders, and scandals erupted like boils and sores. Instead of the dictator of little mons of beauty pageants, casinos, luxury condominiums, fake universities offering fake educations with real debt, fake reality TV in which he is the master of the fake fate of others, an arbiter of all worth and meaning, he became fortune's fool. He is, as of this writing, the most mocked man in the world. After the Women's March on January 21st, people joked that he'd been rejected by more women in one day than any man in history who is mocked in newspapers, on television, and cartoons, was the butt of a million jokes, and his every tweet was instantly met with an onslaught of attacks and insults by ordinary citizens gleeful to be able to speak sharp truths to bloated power. He is the old fisherman's wife who wished for everything, and sooner or later he will end up with nothing. The wife sitting in front of her hovel was poor after her series of wishes, because she now owned not only her poverty, but her mistakes and her destructive pride, because she might have been otherwise, but brought power and glory crashing down upon her, because she had made her bed badly and was lying it, in it. The man in the White House sits, naked and obscene, a pustule of ego, in the harsh light, a man whose grasp exceeded his understanding because his understanding was dulled by indulgence. He must know somewhere below the surface he skates on that he has destroyed his image, and like Dorian Gray before him, will be devoured by his own corrosion in due time, too. One way or another this will kill him, though he may drag down millions with him. One way or another... He knows he has stepped off a cliff, pronounced himself king of the air, and is in free fall. Another dung heap awaits his landing. The dung is all his. When he plunges into it, he will, at last, be a self-made man.
1: That's it for today's show. Did you like it? If you did, you can let us know by tweeting at us. You can find me and the whole TrumpCast team on Twitter, at RealTrumpCast. That's at RealTrumpCast. And hey, are you looking for a new podcast to listen to? I'm always looking for new shows to try. I have one to recommend to you. It's from Slate's resident interviewer, Isaac Chotner, and it's called I Have to Ask. Isaac Chotner is the envy of every other interviewer because he will ask anything. And he's a fantastic conversationalist. I love to hear him talking to people. You can find all the episodes of his new show, I Have to Ask, at slate.com slash ask. That's a cool URL, isn't it? Slate.com slash ask. Today's show was produced by Jason DeLeone, And thanks to everybody who contributed to our shows this week. There are a lot of them, including my co-hosts, Virginia Heffernan and Jamel Bowie, and Steve Lichtai and June Thomas who help keep the wheels turning here. I'm Jacob Weisberg. We'll be back next week with more TrumpCast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
0: Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh?
1: Ah.